Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, November 7th, 2013. Normal episode of Fighting for the Faith today. We'll do a little bit of a recap on Resurgence. I won't play everything here. But I did have a chance to watch the live stream. And I've read Driscoll's new book. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down and stop and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, to God's Word in context, to see if what you're being taught is the truth, or if you're being schnookered or bamboozled or hoodwinked, or somebody's pulling the wool over your eye, making merchandise of you, trying to pickpocket your wallet, you know, things like that, all in the name of Jesus, when in fact they're not actually teaching Jesus. So, like I said at the uh, opening of the program today, uh, second half of this hour, we're going to spend a little bit of time listening to two audio segments that were posted on YouTube from uh, the Resurgence Conference yesterday that was put on by uh, Mars Hill Church, uh, Mark Driscoll and Company, and uh, and we kind of focus on, in on what exactly is the issue with Mark Driscoll. Now, the reason I ask it that way is because when we talk about Mark Driscoll, one of the things I would like you all to keep in mind is that Mark Driscoll is a guy who I would say is a mixed bag. Um, and that is that uh, he there's times when he can be just spot on. And if you've um, if you read his new book Resurgence, or if you have picked up a copy and are just now reading it, then you will find that there's a lot of well, quite cogent and lucid and true things that he says in there. The, the, I have no problem with the the good things that Mark Driscoll says. In fact, he has a passion for the gospel and evangelism, which is all well and good. That being the case, the problem is is that there's really a mixed bag in there's mixed messages that he sends and I'm trying to, you know, kind of put my finger on it and I, as I was reading the book last night, I had about uh where I was up in the middle of the night and was uh, working through the book uh, after I was unsuccessful at sleeping, uh, kind of a long story. I, I've suffered from insomnia for a large portion of my life. But so while I was reading last night through the book, one of the things that struck me, and you'll and you'll kind of and I'll key in on this as we're uh, listening to uh, Driscoll speak, you know, from the Resurgence Conference yesterday, is that there is a hypocrisy that he has that is well, it's obvious to a lot of people. 
And so the idea is this, is that when somebody's being a hypocrite, you know, a Christian brother, they're being hypocritical, the right thing to do when somebody's being hypocritical is to point out the hypocrisy, point out the double standard, the thing that they're, what they're preaching against, they're not consistently actually practicing, in fact, doing the other thing. And so we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in the second half of uh, this first hour today. And so, uh, so here's what we're going to do. Uh, First hour, we, we're going to start off with the Patricia King update. I have audio from uh, her uh, Patricia King's lecture that she gave at her Big Tent revival that concluded on the 2nd of November. And uh, I, I will be listening to this because I want you to see, number one, how she handles God's Word. Number two, I think it's great to listen to what uh, she's saying in light of the things that were recently said at the Strange Fire Conference, because you're going to literally hear her defending some of the most outrageous non, and see that's the right way of putting it, non um, manifestations of the Holy Spirit that she thinks is the Holy Spirit, you know, you know, and so that you know, we'll we'll talk about that. Then we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to start off by listening to a portion of Rick Warren's. Uh, speech that he gave at the Resurgence Conference, and uh, listen to what Rick Warren has to say, and uh, and then what we'll do is we will listen to to a portion of what Mark Driscoll said that's available you know for free on uh, YouTube if you want to see it, and this is where I think uh, Mark Driscoll is extremely hypocritical. I mean hypocritical in a way that is palpable, and he's flat-out inconsistent in a way that's palpable, and I think the right way to approach this is to say, Brother Mark, you know, there are some, there are some things that you say that are good. There are some things that you say that are true. There are some that that your passion for preaching the gospel, the passion for people having a live faith in Jesus Christ rather than a dead faith or an inherited faith or things like that. Um, What you say is well and good, and and you have some keen observations regarding the death of, quote, Christendom and make the distinct—a good distinction between what was Christendom and what is Christianity— that being the case is, uh, you know, preacher, do you not preach to yourself, I think would be a good way of approaching this. So that's what we'll do in the first hour. Second hour, we're going to, um, I'm going to do something I normally do not do, and that is, is I'm going to do a cold sermon review. And, you, you know, the, sometimes I do this, but, um, you know, I had a, a listener on Facebook today send me a link to a sermon that I have only listened to the first nine minutes of. And nine minutes in, I can already tell I want to review it, and uh, I have not listened to the whole thing. And the name of it is, Do You Love Yourself? Do You Love Yourself? Um, And it's by Casey Treat. And so uh, from the uh, Christian Faith Center, we'll be listening to that and reviewing that. So understand, once we get to the nine-minute mark, I'm going to be in completely uncharted territory. But from time to time, I do actually enjoy doing a cold sermon review, not knowing what's coming next, so that we can kind of respond in the moment. And, uh, you know, I'll tease out what I think where the issues are as we go. So that's what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. I do recommend that you hunker in, bunker down, uh, put yourself into the proper position so that you don't hurt yourself. Uh, if, yeah, In fact, you know, because we're going to be doing this Patricia King update, I should probably play our standard warning and we'll just get right into it. So make yourself comfortable, take the proper safety precautions. Here's our warning and then we'll get started. 
Warning, fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. All right, you've been warned. So, um, you know, we haven't really spent a lot of time doing coverage of Patricia King's Big Tent revival, although I get the feeling we'll be doing segments from it for years to come because <laughs> there's so much material there. But I thought, you know, since Patricia King was basically saying, you know, there's some forthcoming big move of the spirit, the, the fire revival thingy. And uh, you could tell that she was doing all of that, uh, you know, in the months ahead of her big tent revival. And apparently, uh, no fire revival showed up. So um, she's at this point, you know, left having to kind of continue the idea that though this fire revival thingy is still coming. So what we're going to do is we're going to drop into the middle of Patricia King's big tent revival session that she gave there. And uh, she just to, so that you kind of get your bearings, you know, as to where we're at. She's going, she's talking about, she's in the process of talking about the children of Israel being led by God in the wilderness. And, and she's going to kind of try to exegete this. And along the way, you're going to hear her say some pretty crazy things. So just keep that in mind. And so without any further ado, here's Patricia King again. We're just parachuting right into the middle of her session here and uh, hear what she has to say. Here we go. As they're, you know, as they exited um, uh, Egypt and they're moving towards the promised land because God had given them a promise, they were led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And the presence of the Lord himself not only sustained them in the wilderness, gave them the manna out of heaven, the water out of the rock, looked after them everything, and he directed them in that wilderness. He was everything that they needed in that place. They were in transition. Say transition. transition. How many of you are in transition? Now, the thing is, they didn't discern, they didn't discern what they should do in that wilderness. They misread the whole thing. You know, they come out of Egypt. They weren't in Egypt anymore, but they weren't yet in their promised land. They were in that interim stage. And when you are in that stage, if you discern that you're in your transitional place, from moving toward living in the promise that God has given you, then you can ask the Lord, how do I live in this place? It's drawing close to him. That's what he did for Israel in the wilderness. But the thing is, he led them by a cloud, you know, and whenever the cloud would stop, they got to camp. But until then, they just had to keep moving. But when the cloud stopped, they could camp. Now, just imagine this for a moment. I mean, they have plundered Egypt, so they have their camels, and camels are loaded with stuff. And I'm sure, you know, the housewives, they had, you know, 
probably some pictures or drawings of their family that they put on the wall. They were probably similar to what we do today. I'm sure that, you know, they had some of that stuff with them, you know, as they're leaving Egypt, taking their personal belongings. Uh-huh. So we're, now we're imagining the uh, <clears throat> the supplies they brought with them as they, you know, left Egypt, including, you know, fine works of family art. D- did they make portraits back then? And... um. And so they get to stop. You know, I can just imagine what that must have felt like. Oh, good. The clouds stop. We get to just stop. We get to camp out for a while. We, you know, don't have to keep moving, you know. And um, so, you know, the men, they set up the tents and build the latrines and everything. And how many of you like these, you know, outhouses we have? Aren't they great? You know, I'm so thankful for them. <laughs> what would we do without them? <laughs> but anyways, there they were out there in the wilderness. They set up the... Never pass up an opportunity for some good potty humor during a, a revival. And, you know, get everything ready. And, you know, they're just enjoying all good. We're camping and they got their air con in the day with a cloud by day. And they got the furnace at night because it gets cold in the desert at night. And so he's a fire by night. They got everything they need. They got the manna coming out of heaven. You know, it's a happy camp. You know, but then, and us women, we like to nest, right? So they probably put those pictures up on the walls of the tent and say, oh, good, we got home. You know, we're nested. But one day, they're out in the latrine and they got this little moon there. They they look through and then all of a sudden they see the clouds moving. Shoot, (laughs) you know, that means we got to take up and go. They had to discern the movement of the cloud. (laughs) how absurd is it that she imagines that you know some poor israelites in the latrine looking (laughs) through the moon door and seeing the cloud moving (laughs) oh man now when that cloud moved it wasn't comfortable for them to take up their tent, and believe me, these tents are not easy to put up, and they're not easy to take down. Because she was there, you know. And, um, they had to take up their tent, they had to pack up their camels, they had to take the pictures off the wall, they had to do everything they had to do to get ready to move, because if they did not discern that movement and go with it, know what to do, they would have been left in the wilderness. Yeah, highly unlikely that everybody, you know, would have missed the, the cloud moving. And if, you know, if somebody's noticed that the cloud is moving, everyone's packing up and heading out. I'm sure no one's going to sleep through that. You know, you know what I'm saying? And of course, we don't have any account of anybody sleeping through that or inaccurately in depict, you know, understanding and interpreting the cloud moving. Without God, without aircon, without fire by night, without it. And spiritually, that's what happens to a lot of people when you do not have the discernment that you need of the times. Uh, <laughs> what? So, okay, let me see if I got this right. So the right application then of Patricia's handling of this particular text is for me to look out the uh, moon cut out of my latrine and see if I can see what the cloud is doing so that I can discern the times properly. Oy. This, oh, by the way, um, her application of this is ridiculous. Um, what is she, notice what she's doing is allegorizing now in a way that's really not consistent with the biblical text is this wilderness wandering. So, you know, if you're allegorically wilderness wandering, you need to discern where the tabernacle is moving in your life so that you can follow it. 
or the tent or the cloud. You get what I'm saying. <sighs> oh, man. And so we are in this era transition right now, and mm -hmm. God wants us to have a wine skin that is going to hold the new wine. <laughs> okay, so that was a hard left. You know, seriously, if we were all on the bus, you know, and she was driving, she just literally at 60 miles an hour took a hard left turn. We're all having our faces plastered against the windows, you know, and crying out to the people who are watching the bus fly down the road going, help, help, this is a crazy woman. Okay, so we've gone from the, the cloud-moving latrine story and all of that to now we need – see, because what we need now are new wineskins to hold the new wine of the whatever – yeah, um, that past, you know, wineskins, new wine. That isn't talking about some new move of the spirit. How did you get there? So it's going to take number one, discerning the transition of these times so that you can move into it, so that you can know what to do in it. And secondly, to build an expectation to walk in the midst of it. Mm -hmm. Now, God does nothing. It says in Amos 3, 7, God does nothing except he reveals it first to his servants, the prophets. So God will always prophesy. So Amos 3.7 is, is basically a prophecy that God will always prophesy some new move in the Spirit prior to his moving of the Spirit. Oh, man. I don't even have time to unpack all of that. I'll have to circle back and demonstrate how Amos 3.7 isn't exactly doing that. But suffice it to say she's twisting God's word here. The coming move or what he's going to do so that you're not left without discernment, but you need your spiritual antennas uh, to be able to catch those words. Listen, what are the prophets saying? What are they saying? You mean prophets like you and James Gall and Todd Bentley? Um, mm -hmm. Those would be false prophets. And um, I want to say that, you know, prophetically, that we are about ready to enter into the greatest move that the history of the church has ever, ever experienced. Mm, really? Uh-huh. Please continue. Ever, ever experienced. We are going to see an outpouring of the Spirit that will make all the other moves look like, just like a a wind that blew through. And so if we are discerning that, we need to know how to prepare it. How do we prepare ourselves? How do we move into it? How do we draw close to God? Because obviously we're not in it fully yet, but we know it's coming. We're transitioning into that. Yeah, so we're transitioning now into the fire revival, which she's been talking about for months. Uh huh. Now, in the Bible, the prophet Ezekiel had a vision where there was a measurement from a level of water that was coming out of the, out of the throne. And at first it was ankle deep, then it was knee deep, and then it was up to the loins, and then, you know, it was just, it was just too deep. They had to, you know, swim in it. They couldn't stand in it. Now, when you experience one move of God, you don't lose what you receive from the Spirit in that move. That's still the water level that you walk in. Mm-hmm. I don't know what she's talking about there. We go from glory to glory. We don't abandon one level of glory to move into the next. And that's why it's important to catch every move. Yeah, so that you can, you know, compound your glory and go deeper in whatever she's talking about. 
this doesn't make any biblical sense at all. Christians have denied moves of the Spirit. They've been off camp- camping in their own campground sort of thing. And they didn't discern what was going on in the whole body. Because, you see, we are a whole body with different organs, but we all flow together. We're not just an isolated piece doing our thing. It's extremely important in this hour, especially because God's going to use the whole body. It's every, every one together. So... We want to discern the times and get a hold of that. So if you go from the glory from one movement, then you discern the next and you go in and find Holy Spirit in that movement and get a hold of that. And then you go into the next one and get a hold of that. The water. So your movement chasing. Remember I talked about how these people are they're like kind of like spiritual experience surfers. They're looking for the next move of the spirit. And, you know, she's supposedly prophesying this next move so they can go from glory to glory, you know, to find out where the Holy Spirit's going to pop up next. Next, you know, for some great outpouring inside of you is going to rise in every single movement until you get to a place where you are so immersed in God <laughs> that you'll be in perpetual swimming mode, you know. Yeah, and none of this is taught anywhere in scripture. Just swimming in that glory, really, and God will just take you from glory to glory to glory. But oftentimes in church history, one move, the people that experience one move will actually oppose the next move. They will be the persecutors of the next move because it wasn't... Oh, no, you don't want to be the persecutors of the next move of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that, that, that's almost the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and we all know that can't be forgiven. Inside their grid, it wasn't inside what they learned from the Spirit that was legitimate at a particular time. So when something new came, they couldn't relate to it because they were too fixed inside of what they learned before. We, you know, we have to be flexible. What you're right. So if you're being dogmatic and thinking that the next move of the Holy Spirit is going to be just like the last one, well, you can't do that. You got to be flexible. You know, the Holy Spirit's ready to reveal all kinds of new things and do stuff that you never even heard of before. So you need to be flexible. Uh huh. Rather than testing it against the written word of God, you need to be flexible. King in today will be expanded tomorrow. You're not just going to stay stuck in in the ways that the Spirit has taught you up to this time. You're going to expand. You're going to grow. But you need to discern how the Spirit is moving and keep your eyes open. Now, Bob Jones prophesied in 1975. He Bob Jones, false prophet. A vision, he prophesied that there would be three significant moves of the Spirit before the coming of the Lord. The first one would be a move of wine, the second a move of fire, and the third a move of wind. All right, so we got wine, wind, fire, or fire, sorry, wine, fire, wind. Reminds me of that, that band, earth, wind, and fire, yeah, okay. In 1984, he reiterated the prophecy, and he said, 10 years from now, the movement of wine will come. Now, 1984 to 1994 is 10 years. What happened in 1994? A historical mark was injected into the earth from heaven in Toronto, Canada. Yeah, the Toronto outpouring, the people who, uh, the, you know, the bubble up from your belly thing, you know, the holy laughter, supposed holy laughter revival, which was absolutely demonic and completely not actually having anything to do with God the Holy Spirit. 
Father's blessing was poured out. It was a global move. Every single continent was visited by that move. And yet, not every believer identified it, discerned it, or jumped into that river. But it Yeah, because that was a polluted river, full of false doctrine, false signs and wonders, false manifestations of God the Holy Spirit, where people were literally on the ground shaking and barking like dogs and laughing uncontrollably. That's not from God the Holy Spirit, Patricia was a movement of wine. Amazing wine was poured out. In fact, one of the earmarks of that particular movement was that, was that people were drunk in the Holy Ghost. I mean, I'm telling you, drunk, <laughs> you know? I re- yeah, which would be self-refuting. That's not God the Holy Spirit at work. And the f- doctrine that went along with this, completely false doctrine. And it's this movement that has given us people like Patricia King and Todd Bentley and Bill Johnson and others who are complete manglers of, of God's Word. They don't, they don't bear fruit by rightly handling God's Word. They are marked by constant false teaching and twisting and manipulating of God's Word and teaching rank heresy being in Toronto at that outpouring and there was so much presence in the air that's why it ruins you when you experience something like that it ruins you for anything less than that I'm looking for the more but there was so much presence in the air that you literally couldn't stand I mean we would be on elevators with 13 people all crashed on top of each other in the floor laughing our heads off you would have the, the Jewish rabbi, the Catholic priest, and the Presbyterian minister all heaped together laughing their heads off together drunk in the Holy Ghost drinking together I remember being so radically touched in there. You know, there was, there was so much strange fire indeed. You know, in the first, the first two years of that renewal, and it's like celebrating 20 years now this coming January, 20 years. Um, but in the first two years, there was over, I believe it was 100,000. No, no. In the first two years, there was 10,000 documented salvations. But in the first year, it broke out. The sparks went everywhere, but some sparks hit Brownsville, Florida. So sparks went everywhere, strange fire, and hit Brownsville. Okay. And it broke out on Father's Day. The Father's Blessing broke out on Father's Day in Brownsville, Florida. And in one year, the first year of that revival in Brownsville, over 100,000 documented salvations and we're talking about people burning their drug paraphernalia all that kind of stuff happening that's the fruit you got to look for the fruit of a move the other thing that yeah the fruit of that move is just rank heretics and people who are basically purveyors of false signs and wonders and twisters of god's word that's what brownsville and toronto gave us happened was that what was was many pastors who were dry and wanting to give up they were just you know they were just you know refreshed again and going on bill johnson actually got fire in that or got the wine i should say in that movement went back to Be- yeah bill johnson of bethel in redding california that he's the fruit of those revivals it broke out in Bethel big time and opened a portal for the supernatural. And Bill Johnson now is an apostolic father releasing, you know, kingdom culture to the nations. That was never even heard of before that time. But what God... In- yeah, because that has nothing to do with making disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that Christ has commanded. It's completely 
contrary to it. Of him in one revival, in one move of the Spirit, is transforming the world today. Dr. Che On was transformed in that revival. He went to, to uh, Toronto. He got the, the um, wine, drank the wine. It broke out in the auditorium. They were having revival night after night after night. And now Dr. Che On is an apostolic father to a whole network with over 30,000 ministries worldwide going for it and God bringing in the harvest together. That is some of the fruit. Heidi Baker. A burned out missionary goes to Toronto. They had planted three churches that were failing. She was totally burned out. And by the way, you know, burnout. <laughs> oh, no, that, that, that would take me too long. That would take me too long. We don't have to be burned out, you know, just receive from the might of God, you know. I think sometimes us North Americans, and I'm not talking about Heidi because she was like literally burned out and discouraged because she was working around the clock but sometimes us in north america we say oh i'm so burned out because you know i've been in meetings for four days hello <laughs> you know come on <laughs> you know <laughs> we've got the might of the lord to draw on you know it's endless energy in the lord i mean even in the depression man would do hard labor for their families 12 hours a day work six and a half days a week and they did it for years all the way through the depression and never burned out you know, come on, you know, you know, sitting through a meeting, it shouldn't burn us out, you know, or, you know, working six days a week shouldn't burn us out. But anyways, that's just a, a different story. I've, I've, I've got some insights on that. Just drink of his energy, drink of it. He's got good energy drink. It's called the spirit of God. And, um, but anyway, she was literally burned out. They were really discouraged and, and, um, uh, she goes to Toronto. She had been warned not to go there. It's demonic. Don't go there. And she was even warned by one of their benefactors saying, you know, we're giving you a million dollars to do a building, but if you go to Toronto, we're going to withdraw it. But she just felt the spirit telling her to go to Toronto. She goes in secret. And um, she didn't become secret for long, though, because the spirit of God came on her, and she got totally blasted drunk. They carried her up to the platform and highlighted her, and she was all over the news. And so the benefactor did withdraw the million dollars. Totally plastered drunk. That is not God the Holy Spirit. That is a deceiving spirit. That has nothing to do with God the Holy Spirit. You get the idea, though. I don't need to go on. I think Phil Johnson's phrase for this is that he thinks it should be self-refuting. If you think that God the Holy Spirit's the one who produced all of that and he has given us Bill Johnson and Patricia King and others like her, that's not God the Holy Spirit because these people do not teach what God's Word says. They twist it and mangle it and they are off chasing after the next big spiritual experience and high that they can have. And this idea that God the Holy Spirit would manifest himself in a way where people will be falling over, quote, drunk, is absolutely blasphemous. This isn't God the Holy Spirit. This is strange fire. This is not God the Holy Spirit. It's, it's maybe a spirit, but it's not God the Holy Spirit. More than likely, the source is actually demonic. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at piratechristian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to have an update 
regarding two sessions uh, from the Resurgence Conference that just finished up at Mars Hill in Seattle. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. You have reached the voice mailbox for Melissa Fisher. Please leave a message after the tone. When finished, you may press one for more options. Hi, Melissa. It's the Holy Spirit. Um, I was wondering if you could help me out. I'm, I'm trying to uh, you know, get a hold of a guy named Vincent. That I, I can't remember his last name. This guy wants me to make myself real in his life, but I can't find his address or his phone number or email. The world is so complicated. You know how hard it is to find somebody if you can't remember their last name? Do you know how many Vincents there are in the world? He's, he said that he would leave his sin behind if I could just, you know, somehow reach out to him and prove that I'm real. So if you can make one of your really fancy videos and tell him that I'm calling him by name, but don't tell him that I can't remember his last name, I, I really would appreciate it. Oh, and, uh... One more thing, you might want to mention something about his adventurous heart. That way he'll know that the message is for him. Thanks, Melissa. I, you know, I don't know what I'd do without you. Hey, everyone. This word is for Vincent. Vincent, the Lord calls you by your name, and he is making himself known to you today. Now that he has made himself known to you, remember what you said. You said, Lord, if you would call me, if you would make yourself real, that I would come and I would leave, absolutely leave all of it behind and come to you because you've been wavering between two opinions. Now here it is. Vincent, the Lord is calling you. Come to him. The life is better on this side. Believe me. Give up the unfruitful works of darkness and walk completely in the light. And I tell you, Vincent, you won't be sorry. The Lord is ready to show you a mighty, mighty adventure. That adventurous heart that you have, the Lord is going to really, really reach in and he's going to satisfy that heart in you. And it's going to be even more than you ever could have planned on your best day. So, Vincent, come to the Lord. Wait no longer. Vacillate between two opinions no longer.
keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted... It's a Star Trek uniform, but it's red. What are you trying to say? It was the only colored wool fabric I had. Uh, Try it on. It's, uh, really itchy. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with false signs and wonders, which is what you should be. Highly dissatisfied. They're not true. They're leading you away from Jesus. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by... By clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And uh, let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Moving along. Okay, we're going to be doing two resurgence updates. And since technically this is not an update uh, of a Rick Warren update, nor is it technically a... uh, um, an update regarding Mark Driscoll, but it's a resurgent update. I'm not going to play our normal update music for either Rick Warren or 
for Mark Driscoll. Instead, I'm just going to you know play it straight here. And what we're going to do is we're going to listen to Rick Warren. And you can find this video, by the way, on YouTube. And uh, you know, they put this up as a highlight for the Resurgence Conference, which just finished up yesterday, two-day conference up there at Mars Hill in uh, Seattle. And this is Rick Warren speaking. And the name of the uh, uh, what we're going to be listening to, the name of the segment is called God Uses Those Who Are Willing to Risk Failure. Uh, Rick Warren speaking at Resurgence 13. Okay, now I'm going to play this for you because what you're going to hear is problematic theology at best. Now, that needs to be featured so that then when we get to uh, Mark Driscoll's uh, you know, soundbite that we're going to be listening to, uh, his soundbite is entitled, Tribalism is Killing Us. Tribalism is Killing Us. And, uh, you know, but I need to, first and foremost, put this out there so that you can hear Rick Warren, because Rick Warren was one of the featured speakers at Resurgence. And, you know, the folks at Resurgence eh, got what I would call a theological mixed bag, if you would. So here's Rick Warren speaking at Resurgence 13, and the name of the video is God Uses those who are willing to risk failure. Here we go. Now, here's the problem when you set a faith goal, is if you're serious about it, you'll reach it far sooner than you thought. And when I thought it'd take me 40 years to get to 20,000, it took me 20 years. So I had to set a new goal. But God uses the person who dreams great dreams. You let the size of your God determine the size of your dream. Okay, God uses those who dream great dreams. Where is that taught in the Bible? Where does the Bible say that God uses those who dream great dreams? Now, keep in mind who the audience here. Resurgence, the Resurgence Conference, was for pastors, people who are in the pastoral ministry. And so this is an audience full of not just garden-variety Christians, but an audience full of pastors, of seeker-driven leaders, and folks like that. And so here you have Rick Warren positively claiming that he knows with certainty that these folks need to understand God uses those who dream great dreams. And he doesn't have a single passage of Scripture that actually says that in context. So where's Rick getting this from? Answer, he's preaching um, theology and what he believes is the will of God coming from his own personal experiences. Do your own personal experiences rise to Christian dogma? The answer, no, not at all. Now, if this is what God wanted his pastors to believe and to practice and to, you know, and to teach others, why don't any of the pastoral epistles say, and young Timothy, keep in mind that God only uses those who dream big. So make sure, young Pastor Timothy, that you dream big. You don't find these instructions for any Christian pastors anywhere. So then why are the folks, the pastors who showed up to Resurgence 13, being told this by Rick Warren when God's Word doesn't say this? We continue. And you've never really believed God until you've accomplished, attempted something that cannot be done in the power of the flesh. Most people are afraid to set great dreams and set big goals because of the fear of failure. There's something much worse than failure. It is the fear. Maybe they don't set big dreams and set big goals because God's word doesn't tell them to. Have you thought of that? Your failure. Failure is not that bad. Actually, failure is the way you learn. At Saddleback, we've done more things that didn't work than did. 
Someday I'll write a book, A Thousand Ways to Not Grow a Church, because I know them all. And when we started sending people, we've now sent 23,000 of our members overseas, 23,000, to plant churches, equip leaders, assist the poor, care for the sick, educate the next generation. Well, in the early years, we learned thousands of ways that didn't work, but we just kept doing it. Just kept doing it. And that's how you learn. Don't call it a failure. Call it an education. Some of us are very educated. <laughs> so the, the, the failure is not bad. It's the fear of failure that's bad. And the fear of failure, the Bible says the fear of man is a snare. In other words, the moment I start worrying about what other people think, I'm dead in the water. I'm dead in the water. Mm, okay, so the fear of man is a snare, This God's Word says. And, and apparently that's advice to pastors to make sure that they stop fearing the opinions of people regarding their big dreams. That text isn't talking about pastors dreaming big dreams. So, it starts with a dream. Faith is in a dream. Faith is evidenced in God uses the person who's willing to risk failure. God uses the person willing to risk failure. Chapter and verse, please. That's key. The Bible says of Paul and Barnabas, they risked their lives for the sake of the gospel. Yeah, they did. They did, and there was a whole lot of other people who didn't. There's a whole lot of people who just risked their lives confessing Christ. But nowhere in Scripture does it say, if you dream big dreams and risk big, then God will use you. You can be a risk taker. In your church, you've got three choices, risk taker, caretaker, or undertaker. And you can slowly bury the church. Let's face it, if you're killed... So those are your choices, risk taker, caretaker, or undertaker. Uh, um, again, this isn't based on a sound exegesis of any of the pastoral epistles. Oh, this is based upon Rick Warren's experience and observations regarding growing large, seeker-driven, purpose-driven megachurches. Well, in the church, it actually, the job gets easier every year. <laughs> so some people want to be an undertaker. I heard about this guy who was getting ready to be invited to a new church, uh, and they said, we're looking for somebody who'll stay he said, oh, man, I'm the guy. I stayed with every, the, all three of my last churches until they died. <laughs> God uses the person who risks failure. God uses the person who expects the church to grow. Do you know why God uses me? Now, this is weird, okay, because, you know, I just, let's just engage in some sound biblical exegesis here since he's not, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, okay, this is, the Apostle Paul, as an apostle writing to a young pastor named Timothy, okay? And here's what God the Holy Spirit says to Timothy through the Apostle Paul, because all scriptures God breathed, right? So here's what he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Yeah, so the job of a pastor is to preach the word. He has, a, he has an office. Now, if you haven't listened to yesterday's episode of Fighting for the Faith, pause right here and go back and listen to it, because I think it's important that that is the frame that you have for your mind as you're listening to Rick Warren here, because he's not giving us anything that has to do with anything that's actually revealed regarding the duties of the pastoral office, okay? So here, the Apostle Paul, in this passage that I'm giving you, says to Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. What do you think happens to 
the visible church during those seasons when it is unfashionable to preach the word? Do churches grow or can they shrink? Answer, they can shrink. Now keep in mind, the Apostle Peter talking about Noah talks about the fact that he was a preacher of righteousness and that Noah was a pastor in a sense. He was out there preaching. And how many were saved in the flood? Eight. Noah, his wife, his sons and their wives. That's it. That's it. That's all the number of the people were saved. And yet Noah preached, right? He preached the word, did he not? Yep. Yeah. So who then is responsible for the size of the church? God is, not you, not me, not anybody else. Okay. We're as you know, as Christians and me as a teacher, um, I'm charged with the job of teaching and preaching the word in season and out of season. And here's what the Apostle Paul says. For the time is coming when men will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who will suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So when that time comes, when people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, accumulate for themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear, teachers that will suit their own passions, what do you think happens to the visible church in that time? Does it grow or does it shrink? Well, it's obvious. It shrinks. It shrinks. And it becomes difficult to find pastors who are preaching the word. But his charge to pastors is to preach the word, in season, out of season. Even preach the word when it's so out of season that you're going to lose your job as a pastor because all of the successful churches have pastors who are going to teach people what their itching ears want to hear rather than what sound doctrine is, right? Uh huh. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. How is the work of an evangelist fulfilled? By preaching the word, even when it's unfashionable, out of season to do so, even when the visible church has surrounded itself with false teachers, the job of a true pastor is to preach the word. So here, Rick Warren is just spewing stuff out from his own experience and telling these pastors these, this is what they need to do, but he's not basing it on anything that's actually written in Scripture. He's just spinning it out of his own head and his own experience. Is that who um, pastors should be listening to? And why is Mark Driscoll not um, getting up and contradicting Rick Warren and saying, hey, that's not what God's Word says? He's the one who invited Rick Warren, is he not? It's not because I'm smarter than everybody else. I'm not. But God uses me because I expect him to use me. Oh, Rick Warren, he's so humble. I'm not, I'm not better than anyone else, but I, God uses me because I expect him to use me. So he, he just basically undid everything he said. And I've got to back this up so that you can hear it in context. Listen to these humble words from Rick Warren. God uses the person who expects the church to grow. Do you know why God uses me? It's not because I'm smarter than everybody else. I'm not. But God uses me because I expect him to use me. Not because of who I am. Yeah, and there isn't a single pastor sitting there who doesn't expect God to use him. And of course, what he's really saying, let me translate this for you. You know why God uses me? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know what that means. I have this huge 
church down in Southern California called Saddleback. And we have all these satellite uh, multi-site campuses and small groups meeting all over uh, Southern California and the world. You know why God uses me and, you know, and that means huge numbers? It's because I expect him to. Because I, I expect him to. Yeah, this is not a humble statement. This is one of the most arrogant things I've ever heard any human being ever say. Because of who Jesus is. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. If you study scripture, you'll find that every time God moves out of heaven and moves on earth, it's because somebody believed. Believed what? Believed what? Believed that God can do big things? How about God forgives sinners? What, what, what is God doing in your life right now? Without even knowing you, I can tell you. He's doing exactly what you expect him to do. No more, no less. Why? Because the Bible says, according to your faith, it will be done unto you. What do you... Yeah, that, again, wow, that's way out of context. According to your faith, it'll be done to you. That is a statement made by Jesus to a particular person who was asking Jesus for a miracle. Oh, my. Expecting God to do in your life. All right. So there's Rick Warren. God uses those who are willing to, quote, risk failure. Now, next segment we're going to hear, and again, you can find these on YouTube. This is uh, on the Resurgence YouTube channel. And the name of this highlight that we'll be listening to from Mark Driscoll is entitled, Tribalism is Killing Us. Tribalism is Killing Us. And uh, Mark Driscoll is going to make some interesting points here. And I'm going to supplement some of his statements that you're about to hear from statements that he makes in his new book, uh, Resurgence, which I've, I have I read yesterday and actually finished it last night. So, without any further ado, here is Mark Driscoll saying tribalism is killing us. Here we go. One of the things that is killing us is not out there, but it's in here, and it's this issue of tribalism. And I, I deal with this in the resurgence book, and that is that I believe that in the era of, of whatever you want to call it, pluralism, globalism, whatever word you like, pick your ism, um, that really it's tribalism that has hurt the church because as the, as the culture has trended quickly hostile against Christianity, and I'll deal with this in my final session, but as the culture has trended quickly hostile toward Christianity, um, if we waste our time with infighting instead of investing our time with evangelizing, then there is a great reason for us to be repenting. And, and this issue of tribalism is the difference between um, different borders. If I ask you, where do you live? You would answer that question differently depending upon where we were. So like when I was in Australia some years ago with my family, somebody come up to me, where do you live? I live in the United States of America. Okay? If we're in the United States of America, let's say we're in Indianapolis, they ask, where do you live? I'll say, I live in Seattle. If we're in Seattle, they ask, where do you live? Live in North Seattle on the west side, not the east side. Okay? If I'm out walking the dog, they say, where do you live? I live over there by the water tower. If I'm in Australia, they say, where do you live? I don't say, by the water tower. <laughs> okay? And what happens is that you and I, we're part of a tradition. It's 
Some of you say, no, we're not. You are part of a rebellious, fundamental tradition that doesn't read history, but you're still part of a tradition. Okay? We're all part of a tradition. We come here part of some group that has been teaching and thinking for a while. And the way we define ourselves are by our borders. Where do you live? And what I would submit to you is that, that the borders are different from your neighborhood to your city, from your city to your state, from your state to your nation. You can go from one neighborhood to another, not even know it. You can go from one city to another, maybe not even noted other than just a brief sign. You can move between states without any complexity, but once you cross a national border, well then it's a big deal because now you've really changed geography and you're under different laws and jurisdiction and things are different. Now, so here's his analogy, if you can't, you can't you only summar, summarize it, okay? He thinks that one of the reasons why Christianity is dying is, that we're killing ourselves because of infighting, and he's likening it to this, okay? That if Christianity is the United States, okay, then Calvinism is one of the states within the United States. Reformed theology is one of the states. Lutheranism is one of the states. Um, Reformed Baptist, that's one of the states. Um, you know, general evangelical Arminianism, that's one of the states. And what people are doing, according to him, is they're fighting over state borders um, rather than correctly identifying those who are outside of the borders of the United States. So if you are outside of the United States border, in his analogy, if you're in Canada, Mexico, uh, you're off in England or South Africa or something like that. That means that you're outside of our country and you know, and that you're not really a Christian. Okay, you know, That's a decent metaphor, not a bad a analogy. This is, I would say, okay, he's got a point here, but listen carefully to the details of what he says regarding what puts you know one tribe outside of our nation as Christians. For us to overcome tribalism means that we need to reflect very carefully on what borders are national. If you cross them, you're in another religion. This is true. The Trinity, you're in another religion. Right? Okay, did you hear that? Listen again. I'm going to back this up. Listen to what he just said. If you cross them, you're in another religion. The Trinity, you're in another religion, right? You get rid of the Bible as God's perfect word. You've crossed a national border. Jesus, fully God, fully man. You, you deny that, one person, two natures. You're into another nation. You're into another religion. Mm -hmm. That there were sinners who need a savior, that Jesus alone died for sin on the cross, that he rose from death, those kinds of things, heaven and hell, those are all national borders. You cross those, you're into something else. Amen? Would you give me that? Amen. I'll give him that. Let me read from his book, okay? On this chapter that actually covers this topic in more depth, Here's what uh, Driscoll says. A secular culture becomes less and less warm towards Christian faith. Uh, as the secular culture becomes less and less warm towards Christian faith, it becomes more and more important for every tribe to be clear about national border issues. For three reasons. One, we want Christians to know where the line is. There is a line between Christianity and apostasy, heresy, cult, or different religion. One example of a line is the doctrine of the Trinity, as this alone is the Christian concept of God. Without a person, uh, no longer uh, without it, a person no longer has a Christian view of God. 
Um, okay. I agree with him. My question is, why is he drawing this line and saying it's a national border when he and James McDonald were the ones who were trying to hoodwink all of general evangelicalism into believing that T.D. Jakes is somebody who's within the national borders of Christianity, and yet T.D. Jakes at Elephant Room 2 said, oh yeah, I believe uh, one God in three persons as long as by person you mean manifestation. Uh Uh-huh. T.D. Jakes, still at Elephant Room 2, was actually saying that he was a modalist. Not a, not a Trinitarian. He says he believes in one God who exists in three persons, if by person you mean manifestation. Mm-hmm. And at Elephant Room 2, Driscoll and McDonald gave, gave T.D. Jakes a clean bill of health. And keep in mind, T.D. Jakes is a word of faith heretic. He teaches the word of faith heretic. Heresy, completely different religion. That puts T.D. Jakes outside of our national borders, right? T.D. Jakes also is a money-grubbing guy who teaches that you can sow a seed and God will bless your life. And he has fleeced Christians to the tune of millions upon millions of dollars of people trying to sow seed offerings to TBN and other outfits in order to buy a miracle from God, to demonstrate to God that they have enough faith to earn a miracle from God. And yet, Mark Driscoll and James McDonald are responsible for saying to the general world at Elephant Room 2, and you know, general evangelicalism, that T.D. Jakes actually doesn't, his false theology doesn't put him outside of the borders of Christianity, but he's actually within the borders of Christianity. I find that absolutely fascinating and hypocritical. And let me read to you another portion of Driscoll's book. Um, in Driscoll's book, he has a chapter where he's talking about spiritual one-ism, okay? He's talking about all these different one-isms, where Christianity has, you know, has a two-view two uh, of creation. God is separate from creation, although he's in it, he's separate from it. So uh, creation and and uh, and God are separate. He talks about these other false religions where there's a one-ism. And let me read to you something fascinating that he points out, and I think is spiritually astute and correct regarding uh, the the head bishop of the Episcopal Church in the United States of America, Catherine Jeffords' story. Here's what Driscoll writes regarding her. Spiritual one-ism is dangerous because it is naive. It assumes that all spirits are good and does not accept the reality of Satan and demons. In a terrible but insightful example, Catherine Jeffert Shorey, the presiding bishop over the U.S. Episcopalians, said in a sermon based on Acts 16 that Paul acted in a bigoted and sinful way by casting a demon out of a young woman. In a statement she never apologized for, clarified, or retracted, Shorey preached, quote, Paul is annoyed, perhaps for being put in his place, and he responds by depriving her of her gift of spiritual awareness. Paul can't abide something he won't see as beautiful or holy, so he tries to destroy it, end quote. Now, notice something here. Mark Driscoll, in his book, Resurgence, A Call for Resurgence, his latest book, he correctly identifies that Catherine Jeffords Sorry is teaching spiritual oneism, which is a false doctrine. And he, in his book, 
says that his expectation for Catherine Jefford Shorey is that she repent of what she said. Let me let me read let me read it again. In a statement she never apologized for, she never clarified or retracted, Shorey preached. Okay. So Driscoll correctly identifies that Catherine Jefford Shorey should apologize for her statement. He correctly identifies the fact that Catherine Jefford Shorey should have clarified her statement. And that Catherine Jefford Shorey as a Christian bishop you know, using a, you know, an elastic term here, should have retracted what she said. And Driscoll's absolutely right. My question is, why the hypocrisy? Why is Driscoll not apologizing for trying to con American evangelicals into believing that T.D. Jakes is actually within the national borders of Christianity when he still holds on to a modalistic view of God, which in his book, and you just heard him say at the Resurgence Conference yesterday, if you don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, you are outside of the national borders of Christianity. Why has Mark Driscoll not apologized for and clarified and retracted the three things he expects Catherine Jefford Shorey to do for her false doctrine? Why has he not clarified, retracted, and apologized for his statements regarding T.D. Jakes and his participation in the crime that was committed last year at Elephant Room 2 to make it appear as if T.D. Jakes is actually within the national borders of Christianity when he clearly is not. You see, it's not that Mark Driscoll isn't capable of teaching the truth. He can, and he does. He does it very well at times. The problem is, is that he's a flat-out rank heretic. On the one hand, he correctly identifies the biblical standard, correctly identifies that there are certain key doctrines that you cannot hold to and still be called a Christian, correctly identifies that those who hold those other false views of God are outside of Christianity, part of a cult, they're heretics or apostates, and yet he has never clarified, apologized for, or retracted his actions that led to the false impression that T.D. Jakes is our Christian brother, when according to Driscoll's own standard that he identifies, he's not. Driscoll is a flat-out hypocrite. He doesn't apply to himself the things that he is teaching and preaching. And what he needs to do, and he still has not done, is apologize for his participation in Elephant Room 2, clarify what he did, and retract his clean bill of health that he declared over the apostate, heretic, modalist T.D. Jakes. You see the problem? I hope you do. In fact, I would hope that since... Mark Driscoll is going to be speaking in Indianapolis tomorrow and Saturday uh, at the Act Like Men conference that he would man up and act like a man and actually apologize for, clarify, and retract what he did at Elephant Room 2 in light of the fact that he's out there promoting uh, a proper understanding of who is and who isn't Christian since he's run afoul of the own standard that he's putting out there. He needs to man up, act like a man, repent, apologize, and retract. I think that's appropriate, don't you? 
All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break. When we come back, I'm going to try to do a cold review of a sermon review. Or a sermon. Stay tuned. We'll get you more details on the other side of the break. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Yeah! Hooray! That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh, yay! I've always wanted two tin cans and a string. It's one of those communicated devicey thingies. Now you can talk to your friends of a long. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about Think Geek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. Now, I do this from time to time where I haven't actually listened to an entire sermon and have to review it cold. I don't know where it's going to end up, so it causes me to slow down a little bit, pay close attention to whether or not we're hearing the gospel or if we're hearing something else. So let me do this right, though. And introduce our sermon review this way. Here we go. Hey, ho! 
The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon um, comes to us via Christian Faith Center in Federal Way, Washington. Not too far from uh, the folks up there at Mars Hill. The name of the sermon we'll be reviewing is entitled, Do You Love Yourself? And already my answer is too much, and that's the problem. And sin is a bending in on yourself. Do you love yourself? Uh, Casey Treat is the presiding pastor over this, and uh, that, that's all we get to tell you up at this point, because having not listened to this sermon in its entirety, I've only listened to the first nine minutes and knew that I needed to review this. I don't know where this is going to go. Um, I'm assuming, based on the title, that it's going to just end up a total train wreck. Maybe it'll turn out good. I don't know. But I don't have a lot of hope because we're dealing with a multi-site church, a guy who uh, I've seen on TBN, and a sermon with the name of Do You Love Yourself? So we'll see what happens, though. I don't want to be a cynic. You know, we, gotta, we don't want to prejudge here. So let me go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado, here is Casey Treat and his sermon entitled Do You Love Yourself? Here we go. Well, did you bring your Bible today? Open it to Matthew chapter 22. And uh, I believe the Holy Spirit has a word that will lift you today. Sometimes. Yeah, see, already I'm like, ugh, really. Um, Matthew 22, you think the Holy Spirit has a word for me today? My manipulation meter is going off. It's going bing, bing, bing. I'm detecting manipulation. But we continue. Uh, messages come in almost a prophetic manner. And it's as if I'm hearing it. And so I just write it down. And then try to come and repeat what I heard. And I pray. Oh, see, that's a bad sign. Okay, so um, you think you're hearing from God the Holy Spirit. you got to quick write it down, and then you got to repeat what you think God is telling you. Yeah, the job of a pastor is to preach the word, not act as some kind of oracle. You know, yeah, so we've got a real problem here. Real problem. pray that that's what will happen this morning. That's my goal anyway to simply repeat to you what I think I heard, what I felt that I heard from the Spirit of the Lord. And my prayer is that it's empowering you, it's lifting you, it's strengthening, encouraging you. So when you leave church this morning, you'll feel like you can win every challenge with your family, your marriage, your children, uh, as a single person, every challenge in front of you, your career, your job, your business, your company, you win, you rise up, you overcome, you, you are successful at all you set your hands to. You know, God gave you that promise that you will succeed at all you set your hands to. What are your hands connecting to this week? What pen will your... Uh, what passage of scripture says that I'm going to succeed at all that I set my hands to? Um, yeah, I get the feeling you've just ripped a Bible verse out of context without an address so that I can go and look at it. Um, I don't recall that general promise for Christians that everything I set my hand to is going to succeed. 
Uh-huh. We boy, this is nah. We're only a minute twenty-five into this. This is not good. Your hand pick up. What pencil, you accountants, will your hands pick up? What child will your hands pick up? What work will you put yourself to this week? You have a promise from God that you are strengthened and empowered and encouraged to succeed at all you set your hands to. You believe that? Will you receive that? All right, here's the scripture, Matthew 22 and verse 36. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? What's the big deal? What's the most important? What is the greatest commandment? There were many, wasn't there? We think of 10, but there were hundreds of commandments in the Old Testament. And Jesus said to him, without hesitation, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. Look at that. It's like it. It's connected to it. It goes along with it. It cannot be separated. It is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. It's repeated again in the New Testament that the whole Bible can be summed up in those two commandments. Love God with all that is within you and love your neighbor as yourself. How do you love your neighbor? Well, you think well of them. You want them to do well. You help. Okay, already we've got a problem here. And the reason why we got a problem here is because um, he's teaching a snippet of the story as if it's the whole story and it's got the, the secret tips and stuff like that that we're supposed to be applying here. How do you love your neighbor? You know, and all that kind of stuff. Well, um, we've got a problem and we've got a huge problem. And um, what we need to do is we need to go and we need to find this text and we need to actually take a look at what it says in context so that we understand what's going on. So Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, so here we've got this. So Jesus is basically being peppered with questions, and he answers the question. Now, this doesn't tell us anything about the nature of the law, and we've got a problem here. As Christians, how are we to understand God's law? What's the proper way of distinguishing between law and gospel? Well, understand this. If you think you can be saved by your keeping of the law, you've got another thing coming. And so there's a function that the law has, and its primary function, according to Scripture, is to convict you of your sin and show you of your need for a Savior, because you do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, nor do you love your neighbor as yourself. If we were to take out the microscope of God's law and take a look at how you, how well you're doing, of course, Jesus said all the law and the prophets hang on these, and he's right. 
the, uh, the, the first table of the law has to do with our love towards God. The second table of the law has to do with our love towards neighbor. And notice that Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, kind of assuming that you're going to treat yourself well. That means you need to love your neighbor well, like you do love yourself, okay? That's kind of the idea. But let's make sure we understand law and gospel correctly. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then, are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified, that means to be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the primary use of the law, is to show you your sin. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. How you doing on that? If you're honest, you're going to say, not very well at all. And when you come to grips with that, and you understand that every moment of every day that goes off that you do not love God with all of your heart, you do not love your neighbor as yourself, you are sinning shows that you're unrighteous. We continue, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to us, the righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That means to be declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So what then becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By works, uh, by, by works? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Well, is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Well, yes, the Gentiles also. Since God is one and who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through uh, faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? No, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. Now, that gets us on our categories, okay? Proper distinction of law and gospel here uh, begins with an understanding of the right use of the law. The primary use of the law is to show us our sin. It does not save us, and it never will save us, ever, ever. Okay, so already we got a problem here because um, Casey uh, Treat here has ripped this verse out of context, and now he's going to engage in, uh, well, some kind of hermeneutical funny business, if you would, and it's not going to be funny at the end, but we continue. If they need it, you look out for them. I have wonderful neighbors, and from time to time they'll call up, hey, is everything okay? We heard a noise, or we saw somebody we didn't recognize coming into your driveway. Uh, they'll check in, they'll call, they'll help. If something happens and we're not there, we know our neighbors will cover and will support. How do you love your neighbor? Well, the Bible said, love yourself. 
in the same way as you would love your neighbor. And all of the Bible is summed up in those two. Whoa, that's a twist. How do you how do you love your neighbor by loving yourself? No, that's completely reading the text backwards. How do you Oh man. You love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't say, it doesn't say to love yourself. He just completely changed the entire direction that that verse is flowing. Oh, this is going to be terrible. Oh no. Thoughts. Love God and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, as a young Christian, I was praying one morning in the basement of the Washington Drug Rehabilitation Center. It was not a nice basement. It wasn't a finished basement. It's where I put a little desk when I started Bible school, still in rehab, right? Whenever people ask me, how do you get into ministry? I always say, first you go to rehab. (laughs) So I was in the basement. I'm praying. I felt the Holy Spirit say, the problem with you is that you love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I heard that on the inside, you know, intuition, a sense, a thought. And I said, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't that what I'm supposed to do? And then I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, yes, but you don't love yourself very well. Uh, No. Okay, um, just as a general precaution, if you find yourself in a church where the guy is start, starting to exegete a full-on conversation that he claims to have had with the Holy Spirit, run, do not pass go, do not collect $200, do not put $200 in the offering plate. Stand up and leave immediately. You are not going to be taught the truth. I don't believe this guy is hearing from God the Holy Spirit using the famous Luther quote. I wouldn't believe him even if he had swallowed the Holy Spirit, feathers and all. Because already the direction of where he's doing this, it's all about self-love. That's not the fulfilling of God's law. Self-love? No. It's loving your neighbor and loving God. It's not loving self Oh, man. You love your neighbor as you love yourself. So if you don't love yourself very well, you don't treat people around you very well. How come some of us dads aren't very good dads and husbands at times are not very good husbands and sometimes wives, you know, tend to fight with their husbands more than maybe other things that they should be doing? Because they're sinners, that's what God's law shows. <clears throat> Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Lovers of self. Yeah, in the last days, there's going to be times of great difficulty. People will be lovers of self. That's weird. God, the Holy Spirit, warned me about lovers of self. And what is this sermon about? Loving myself. Weird, huh? We continue. Then we don't get along with people around us. How come church folks can't get along with church folks? You know, forget about the world. Just us folks. Well, oftentimes, usually, I think it's because we love 
others as we love ourselves, and we don't love ourselves very well. So God is saying to us today, love yourself, and that will help you to love everyone around you. Love yourself. That will make you a better husband, a better wife. Love yourself. That'll make you a better father and a better mother. Love yourself. It will make you a better person. You never... What is this? Sermons from the Garden of Deceit? Sermons from the Serpent. Love yourself. Good night. Treat anything that you despise good. If you despise it, if you think it's unworthy, if you think it's bad, if you think it's junk, you don't treat it good. You throw it in the corner. You throw it away. You could care less what happens to it. But if you like it, if you love it, if you think it's cool, if you think it's awesome, well, you're careful how you treat it. You, you put it in a nice soft case. You, you keep it in a nice zipped up bag. You have a place for it on the shelf. You have a place for it. And if someone starts messing with it, you're like, hey, be careful. Don't touch my stuff. So are you the part that gets thrown in the corner and you don't really care about it? Are you the one that's cared for with white gloves, so to speak? How do you love yourself. Yeah, I can't wait to hear this. Can you love yourself or are you trying to be someone else so that you can love yourself? That's a good question, isn't it? If I was like them, I would love myself, right? If I was like that, then I could really love myself. But myself, no, I can't really love myself. But if I could just be different, I think a lot of us wish we were somebody else. Thank you for your exciting response this morning. (laughs) Maybe secretly, maybe we would never voice it out loud, but we wish. Is that why we watch other people on television so much? Because we wish we were them? Is that why we we read articles about people's, uh, you know, life, marriage, divorce, everything that they do? Because we wish we were them? Is that why we love the stars and the the models and the heroes of our society? Because we wish we were them? Or maybe just someone else in our office or in our community that we wish we were more like them. Can you love yourself or are you trying to be someone else so that you could love yourself? Do you know the Bible said that we should Live by faith. Walk by faith, not by sight. So it's not how I see me that decides whether I'm worthy or not. I walk by faith, not by sight. I'm obviously going to see more flaws and more needs in myself than I will see in you because I know me better than I know you. But I walk by faith. And after that verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, down to verse 17, Paul writes, For if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. If any woman is in Christ, she is a new creation. If we walk by faith and not by sight, then we would think of ourselves as new creations 
in Christ. And that we are being made new every day as we walk with God. You know, the great thing about God is he doesn't get old. People think of God as old, but he has no age because he's eternal. There's no yesterday or tomorrow with God. He just is. When Moses said, what shall I tell him your name is, God said to Moses, I am. Not I was, not I will be, just I am. God has no age. He is eternal. And he lives in a constant state of eternal now. He doesn't deal with time as you and I do. Won't it be great when we get into that spirit realm where there's no time? He doesn't deal with time and space like we do. He's a spirit, eternal being. So God is. And the Bible said if you are in him, you're new. You're new every morning. You're new every day. What if you could live by faith and not by sight? Instead of seeing your problems and your negatives and your challenges, you saw yourself in him, a relationship with God. And though we are bound to time and space in these earth suits, these natural bodies, we are on our way to a time where we will be fully in him, spirit, soul, and body. And then we'll be free from the negatives of time and space. So by faith, we now see ourselves in him. So we don't have to judge everything and condemn everything and worry about everything because in him, I'm a new creation. And then at that end of that chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, And he hath made you to be the righteousness of God in him. Because you believe in Jesus, you're not only new, you're righteous. So the self-condemnation can go away. The self-judgment can go away. The inferiority can go away. You know, Wendy and I often talk to each other about how much we compare ourselves among ourselves. And in our Twitter age, our Instagram age, our Facebook age, it's so easy to compare yourself. Oh, they look better than me, or they did that better than me, or their thing was bigger than mine, or their thing was more expensive than mine. It was nicer in this way or in that way. And if you're not careful, you find yourself constantly comparing. But God said, it's not wise to compare yourself among yourself. Why? Because we live by faith in him. And in him, we're all new creations. And in him, we're all the righteousness of God. What if you could get the comparison off your mind? What if you could really love yourself and hence love your neighbor better, stronger, more? Because you always love your neighbor as you love yourself. All right, just turn to your neighbor and say, I think he might be talking to you. Yeah, I just might be. Just might be. Mill Creek, are you with me? I just might be talking to you. Peninsula? Yeah, I am talking to you. (laughs) The young people of our leadership team have been talking about themes and visions 
for 2014 and for the next years. You know, in seven years, it'll be 2020. Do you have 2020 vision? What is your 2020 vision? We've been writing it. We've been praying over it. We've been talking about it for months now, having small groups, having focus groups, discussing it. And one of the things that uh, we feel for the next seven years for our vision 2020 is we just want people to be who God made them to be, to be themselves and to feel good about that. Feel good about who you are because God made you who you are. Weird, completely overlooking the fact that we're sinful and fallen by nature and that none is righteous, no, not one. We just want you to celebrate who you are. This is love of self. This is uh, in, in the truest sense of the word, satanic, and I'm working up something while I'm uh, listening here. Uh, it's a little tough doing this on the fly, but, you know, this is a cold sermon review. So uh, I don't know where this is heading, but where it's heading is very bad. We continue. So you don't have to be me. You don't have to be someone else. Just be you. Well, of course, now that takes a little definition because which you are we talking about? We all have a little bit of schizophrenia, don't we? There's the me that's having a bad day, and I don't act very nice, and I'm not doing what I should be doing. And then there's me having a good day, and I'm being a real Christian. So who is the, the real me? When I say be you, which you am I talking about? Well, of course, I'm talking about the God you. I'm talking about the you that God made, not the, uh, the God me. Um, whew, man, this is absolutely blasphemous. Hang on a second here. Kind of an emergency passage of Scripture i got to throw in here. Again, I'm doing this cold. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, talking about you know, the, church, the Christians in Ephesus prior to their being Christians. And you, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that has now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved." Yeah, I'm not hearing that. This is really creeping me out here. Uh, so we, he's not talking about me. He's talking about the God me. Isn't that the same sin, uh, the same lie that we heard from Satan in the garden? You'll be like God. This is getting really weird. The you that gets consumed with flesh and fear and anxiety and worry and anger and frustration. That you is the worldly you that the enemy perverts. And Jesus said to the disciples one time, you are a perverse generation. In other words, we get caught up in all of our fleshly negatives. But the real you, the God you, is how God created you. And that you is loving and talented and gifted, is awesome and amazing and special. The Bible said it's precious, it's valuable, it's unique. So that's the you that we want you to be, the unique and godly you. Don't be that perverse you. Be that God you. Be that. Sometimes it's hard to be you because 
of all the negatives around, the, the words that get said, the challenge. Yeah, man, I hate to use this source. Okay, th- just to kind of help you out here. Um, <clears throat> this is from a website, okay, that is for Satanists, okay? Um, back in the day, I've done some research into the occult and to Satanism, and what these themes that I'm hearing in this sermon remind me of the themes that I remember when I first did my first analysis in apologetic study uh, of Satanism. <clears throat> this is from darksites.com, and this has to do with, uh, this is a segment of their s- talk, talking about the nine satanic sins. The nine satanic sins. I read, the ultimate reality within the confines of Satanism is simple. Live a life that does not cause self-deceit. A life that you will not regret because who really knows if we get another chance? Do things for personal gain, and if you go out of your way to help or destroy someone, do not have any regrets. Love yourself because you are the higher power and there is none above you. Celebrate your birth with great passion because it is the most important day on any calendar. Be strong so you will survive and prosper. Guard yourself from those who wish to destroy you and all the energy that you possess. Pay homage to yourself when you need to. Educate others so they do not live in ignorance, especially if they are an obstacle that can easily be resolved without destruction of the actual person. Intelligence and education are the most important things that you can obtain for yourself. Do not fall into the taboo of flesh. Embrace the flesh and find much happiness. Do not judge others unless you want them to judge you. Now, this is um, from the again from the you know from a satanic website. These themes that I'm hearing are some of the themes that I hear in Satanism. And it's absolutely terrifying to me. We continue. Challenges, the problems that come to us, the, the things that have happened to us. It's hard to find our real self. It's hard to be, it's hard to be that God self because of all the stuff that we deal with. Think of the Garden of Eden and what Adam and Eve went through. It's an amazing story. They're in the garden. Who knows for how long? Could have been decades could have been centuries. In the Bible, it's only two chapters. And in the third, the enemy starts talking to him. The serpent is talking to him. But how long was they? Were they? <laughs> uh, I'm going I'm I'm to ask you a question. How long was they in that there garden? Well, we don't know. It could have been centuries. So at some point, the serpent is talking to him, and the serpent starts getting Eve's ear. And the serpent starts convincing her not to trust God, not to believe what God said, not to follow the word of the Lord, but to look to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't it interesting? The serpent was trying to get Eve to focus on different knowledge than what they were getting from God. To get some knowledge on their own. To get some knowledge from the flesh. To get some knowledge from the world. Get some other knowledge beside the knowledge that comes from God. And who knows how long this serpent was whispering this to Eve. One day she acted on it. 
And she ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis chapter 3. Eve had been deceived. Adam knew what was happening. Adam's sin was worse because Adam was not deceived. He stood there and he watched his wife be deceived and he watched her commit that sin and he didn't stop it. He could have wrung that serpent's neck. He could have thrown that snake clean out of the garden. He could have taken dominion. He could have been the God man. Um, folks, what we're hearing from Casey Treat here is satanic in the truest sense of the word, okay? Genesis 3 does not teach that Adam is a God-man. Let me read to you the account. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation is for humans to grab something that they're not, for them to be like God, despite the fact that they were created in the image of God. But being created in the image of God does not mean, by any stretch of the imagination, that Adam and Eve, or that Adam was a God-man. This is blasphemous, what we're hearing. Holy smokes! Come on, brothers. Sometimes we set our wives up and then we blame them. So when God comes back to the garden to talk to them, because he's hanging out with them day to day, right? They're walking and they're talking in the cool of the garden. That's why it's important that you stay cool. Uh, What? So God comes to talk and they hear God coming and they hide in the bushes. God says, Adam, where are you? By the way, did you know that Adam literally means red earth, which is pretty much confirmation that Adam had red hair? It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. So where are you? How many know when God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know, right? It's because you don't know. So God says to Adam, where are you? Adam says, I heard you coming. I was naked, so I'm hiding in the bushes (laughs) as if you can't see me. You know, this is like a little kid closing his eyes thinking now you can't see them. How foolish. But when we get off the God self and we get on that negative. We do dumb stuff, don't we? We make wrong. We know we're making the wrong decision, but we do it anyway. So I, I was hiding from you in the bushes. Now, God could have said a lot of things. He could have said, what's wrong with you? He could have said, how could you do that? He could have said any number of things, but God asked a very unique question. God says to Adam, who told you you were naked? In other words, he's trying to get Adam to think about where did you get this knowledge? Where'd you get this idea? Where'd you get this thought? Right? When your kids come home from school and they say a word that you would not say in your house, 
you say, who told you that word? Where did you get that word? Where did you get that knowledge? Where did you get that idea to talk like that? So God says to you, who told you that you weren't pretty? Who told you you weren't worthy? What? Oh, man. Man. I, I am absolutely flummoxed. This is the epitome of self-centeredness and narcissism and self-love that's warned about in Scripture. God's not saying, where'd you get the knowledge that you weren't pretty, that you weren't uh, whatever? Oh, my goodness. This is straight up satanic. Who told you you weren't smart? Who told you you weren't athletic? Who told you you can't overcome those problems? Who told you you're not strong? Who told you that? You and I need to examine where we got the knowledge that's controlling our lives. Why do you do what you do? Well, because I was nervous. Well, because I was scared. Well, because I didn't think. Well, because I didn't want. Well, because. All right. Where'd you get that knowledge? Did it come from the Bible? From the word of God? From the truth of God? From the promise of God? Or did it come from this world? Because if it came from the world, Satan is the God of this world. Who told you you can't be healthy? Who told you you can't live a long, prosperous life? Who told you you can't prosper? Who told you you can't get out of debt? Who told you your marriage can't be happy? My my husband told me. Wow. Yeah, this is the word of faith heresy with a clear satanic self-centered strain in it beyond belief. Unbelievable. Wow. Told me. Well, who's he? Oh, yeah, he's your husband. But even he can change. (laughs) Right, Wendy? So it's important that we think about where we got the knowledge that we're living on. Who told you to doubt yourself? Who told you to be nervous? Who told you to be scared? Who told you to be poor? Who told you to settle for second best, third best, fourth best? Who told you you can't change? Who told you you're tired? Who told you you're fatigued? Who told you? Who told you this is what God's word says? Because it doesn't. Who told you you can't do more? Who told you that? Who told you to slow down, settle down, sit back? Who told you that? God said, rise up. God said, move forward. God said, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. So we have to... Verses out of context turn into slogans and commands and stuff like that. The you know, Words of faith, you know, because your words create reality, apparently. We have to begin to ask ourselves, where did I get this idea? Where did I get this thought? And if it's not from God, I don't, I don't believe it. I doubt my doubts. I doubt my fears. I doubt all the negative thoughts. Oh, when the negative thought, you can't do that, I say, oh, I doubt that. See, some people say, well, I have a problem with doubt. I say, you just have a problem with what you're doubting. Doubt all your doubts. Doubt all your fears. Doubt all your I can'ts and believe everything God says to you. Huh? Yeah. That's what we should do. Now, sometimes you need a mentor or a pastor to believe in you before 
You can believe in yourself. Kids do, don't they? We say to our kids, you can do this. You got this. And they rise up because we believe in them. I was 19 years old and I was so full of doubts and fears. I don't know how my life, you know, the enemy, the world, public schools and, and systems of the world just somehow got me so down about myself. I just doubted and thought so negative about myself. I didn't think I could change. I didn't think I'd ever not be an addict. I didn't think I'd ever overcome. I didn't think I'd ever uh, rise above. I'd ever thought that I could get healed, get whole, have a good marriage, a good, you know, I just doubted all the good and I believed all the bad. 19 years old. I'm already consumed with this negative about me. And I needed someone to believe in me before I could believe in myself. So God will send somebody. God sent me to you or you to this church to say, hey, I believe in you. God will send you someone to help lift. Sometimes it's the connect group leader. Sometimes it's one of the pastors. Man, this is totally backwards. I mean, the flow here is so wrong. Christianity isn't about you believing in yourself. It's you trusting in Christ. You are not the object of your faith. And Christianity isn't supposed to blow smoke in your face and tell you, oh, you're just the bee's needs and I believe in you. No, the message of Christianity is repent and believe the good news that Christ died for your sins. This is infernal. They're just me right here on the platform saying, you're here for a reason. God's got more for you. I believe in you. God believes in you. You can believe in you. Yeah, you can do it. Yeah, the person who believes in himself believes in a fool. Well, how do you know I can do it, Pastor? Because you got here. You got here. And I believe in you. God brought you here for me to tell you. You can believe in yourself. Yeah, trust me. Whoever brought you there, it wasn't God. That's not the message of Christ or Christianity. Whatever compelled you to go to that church, that wasn't God working. That was probably the devil. So Julius was almost 60, a black man raised in Washington, D.C. I stood in Washington, D.C. the other day speaking to a church, and I said, right here was the guy born that believed in me. Here's what he looked like. Here he is, Julius Young. Five foot seven. How tall was he, Wendy? Five foot seven or eight. He's working in the nurse in the laundry that day. Julius put his arm around me like that. We call him Jules. Julius said, Big Red, you can change. He believed in me. There he is. He put his tie on for that picture. Looks pretty good. Oh, there we are. The same height as Wendy. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For, God's, for God, who said, let light shine in the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
man, if I were to believe this guy's theology, I would say that God is shining in our hearts to give me the light of myself, my God-man inside of me. Oh, man, this is horrifyingly bad. Come on, look at that. I got my leisure suit on. Wendy's got her long, what do they call that, a pagan dress? Oh, yeah. Hey, listen, here's a footnote. Can I give you a footnote? Parenthetical statement. That night, I graduated from Washington Drug Rehabilitation Center and asked Wendy Peterson to marry me. That night, right there. Huh? You see that? You know why she said yes? Because I had a mustache. Now, here's an amazing thing. Wendy was the only one not in rehab because she didn't need it. But Julius loved her like he loved me. And she would drive him to meetings, to seminars, to groups and stuff. And he would just speak into her life. So for four years or so, he believed in us. He saw us as leaders, as pastors, as successful. He was the first elder in our church. He died a few years after our church started. But that got us started. Somebody said, Big Red, you can change. Now, I'm saying it to you. Whatever it is, finances, relationships, health, you can overcome. You can rise above it. You can win this battle. You can succeed in life. Not repent of your sins, trust in Christ, and then pray, give us this daily, our day our daily bread. No, you can overcome. You can be healthy. You can be wealthy. You can do this. You can do that. You, 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 I, 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 do. where's God in all of this? Oh, that's right. The God man in you. Wow. But you got to love yourself. Got to love yourself. Got to believe in yourself. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. All right, a couple of the pictures just for fun. I don't know what all they got. Oh, look at that. All right, look at that. Pierce County, Tacoma, Washington. Number 34103. Okay, that night, I don't remember anything about. I look pretty good, though. Okay, that's, I was in rehab by then. I was cleaning up my act. I was getting it together. Man, I was... I don't know what I was there. That's enough of that. All right, so why, why do we want you to, to be part of the church? And why is church important? Wendy and I are walking in Times Square just last week, and uh, people out there with big signs, uh, you need God and you need the Lord, and that was all good. And then one sign said, seek God, not church. Okay, well, I get that. We want a relationship with God. Coming to church won't make you a Christian, right? Any more than sitting in a garage will make you a car. And loving yourself is not what it means to be a Christian. But a lot of people are, 
are beyond God first and then God's house, they're angry at church. They're against church. Why? Well, I don't want organized religion, which basically means I only want disorganized life. But the Bible said Jesus is building his church. Why is that? Because everyone needs someone to believe in them and to encourage them. And when we have the down day and the... Where in the Bible does it say we need church because we need somebody to believe in us? Man, Jesus is the one we're called to believe in, to trust in, to have faith in, not ourselves. I don't go to church so that people say, oh, Chris, I believe in you. They did that, I'd knock them upside the head and say, knock that stuff off, you're supposed to believe in Christ a bad day to say, you got this. You're better than this. That's not who you are. You can overcome. And we all need that to help us believe in ourselves and love ourselves as we are loving our neighbors. So we can't isolate and stay separated. We need the church. We need a place where we get built up, where we get energized, and where we can serve and give, and where we can bring the lost, where we can bring the hurting. What an amazing place. Yeah, you bring the lost to the Christian Faith Center in Federal Way, Washington. They'll stay lost. They'll even be more lost. For us to be able to see week after week after week, every year, hundreds and literally thousands of people coming to Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being a... How can they come to Jesus when you teach them self-love? You're not teaching them about Jesus at all. You completely mangled God's word there. Yeah, you don't know anything about Jesus. So anybody who shows up there is going to be worse off than if they hadn't gone at all. Part of the family of God. That's what it's all about, church. And you can't do that if you stay separated and isolated. So that's why we want you to serve and and be a volunteer and get involved and be faithful in the house because we believe in you and we need you to believe in someone else. Now look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. Find the good or the God in you and love yourself. Believe in yourself. And I'm going to go so far as to say what this... Where does this say this? Galatians chapter 6 doesn't say anything about believing in the God in you. What are you talking about? The scripture said rejoice in yourself. Oh, you say, that sounds a little bit weird. All right, let's read the Bible. Galatians chapter 6, verse 4. Let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for each one shall bear his own load. Now, we know we help each other, and previously... Out of context... Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one of you test his own work, and then his let his reason then he has then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. 
Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Folks, what we're hearing from this man is, in the truest, most literal sense of the word, flat-out satanic. This is the satanic lie about, you know, believing that you are a god. I have to back this up so that you can hear how he prefaced Galatians chapter 6 again, because what he said is nowhere taught in Scripture. Sorry about that. It's nowhere taught in Scripture, and what he's saying is absolutely blasphemous. People coming to Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, being a part of the family of God. That's what it's all about, church. And you can't do that if you stay separated and isolated. So that's why we want you to serve and and be a volunteer and get involved and be faithful in the house because we believe in you and we need you to believe in someone else. Now look at Galatians chapter six. Galatians chapter six. Find the good or the God in you and love yourself. Believe in yourself. I don't even have words. This is sulfurous. It's demonic. And I'm going to go so far as to say what the scripture said. Rejoice in yourself. Oh, you say, that sounds a little bit weird. All right, let's read the Bible. Galatians chapter 6, verse 4. Let each one examine his own work. And then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Now, we know we help each other. And previously, uh, Paul writes, we bear one another's burden. But he also says to us, you need to be able to rejoice in yourself. In other words, you're doing things because you believe in yourself and you know you're talented and you have gifts and you have abilities and you're using them. You're not waiting for someone. That is not what Galatians 6 is saying at all. Someone to care for you. You're not waiting for someone to provide for you. You're, you're adding to society. You're adding to the church and the kingdom of God. You're giving your part because you know you're a valuable precious, talented person, and you can actually rejoice in yourself. Yeah, the scripture said, you will have rejoicing in yourself and not in another. God designed you to celebrate who you are, not to look down on yourself. You know, some of us were trained in a religious environment, and we had this false humility, this religious attitude. I'm so unworthy. I'm so no good. Gosh, that's funny. God said you're precious. I'm so stupid. Wow, the Bible said you can do all things through Christ. I'm so weak. You know, the Bible said greater is he that's in you. You're strong in the... Scripture says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This guy is literally the voice of Satan the Lord and the power of his mind. Now, which one is it? Is it the dumb, unworthy, stupid you? Or is it the strong, blessed, valuable to God you? Well, we can have rejoicing in ourselves by not having that religious, uh, pharisaical, and even false humility. Isn't it funny? We'll condemn ourselves and speak negative of ourselves, but if someone else says bad, I'm going to sue you. 
what? You're just crazy, aren't you? On one day, yes. But on another day, I am who God says I am. And that's the you where we find rejoicing, where we find strength, and where we become the people that God has created us to be. You're never going to get better by feeling bad about yourself. You're never going to be stronger by condemning yourself. You're never going to be a better spouse or a better parent or a better Christian by thinking the negative thoughts about yourself. But when you love yourself, you will begin to love your neighbor in a greater way. Come on, give the Lord a hand clap. It's true. It's true. Yeah, actually, uh, no, you're not giving a Lord a hand clap. You're giving yourself and your self-love a hand clap. So write that scripture down. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 4. Write it down. Think about it this week. We'll have rejoicing in ourselves. Believe you can. Believe you will. Believe you will work hard. You will be faithful. You will make the right decision. You will overcome. With God's help, you will live an abundant life. Believe that. Wow. Brazen is uh, the word that comes to mind. Say that. Think that every day. Love yourself. Yeah, you you do this. You're going to love yourself straight into the pit of hell. And you'll be better at loving yourself your neighbor. God loves you. God believes in you. He's not wrong for doing that. He's not foolish. Where does it say God believes in me? Uh-huh. If God believed in me that I can be all these things, you know, I just had needed to have somebody believe in me, um, then why was Christ hanging on the cross? Why does it say that we were powerless See, it says about Christ that God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Doesn't, that's not belief in me. That's him saving me because he knows I can't. This, oh, man. For doing that, God loves you. God believes in you. Trust him. He must know something you don't know. Believe him. So here's some steps that we can take this week. Number one, see yourself in him. I'm in Christ. I'm a Christian. I'm who God says I am. I can do what God says I can do. I can be. There's Joel Osteen's famous line. Again, this is the word of faith heresy. This is a different religion. This is not Christianity. This is self-love, not what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This guy, oh no, love yourself. What God says I can be because I am in him. Number two, set small goals and rejoice in them. You know, set your alarm clock and get up when it goes off. (laughs) Don't have a snooze alarm. Don't lie around. I laid around and played around this old town too long. Stop. Set small goals. I think I'll get up. It's a miracle. Rejoice in the small goals. On your way to the coffee pot, quote a scripture. Today, I will rejoice in myself alone. I already accomplished two goals. What? Today, I will rejoice in myself alone. Christians rejoice in God. 
Christians rejoice in Christ. They do not rejoice in themselves alone. Unbelievable. Before my first cup of coffee, I got up and I quoted the Bible. Man, I'm on a roll. Whoo, I must be butter. <laughs> Set small goals. Rejoice in those goals as you accomplish them. Make success a habit. I get up when I say I do. I quote the scripture every morning. I leave the house when I say, I'm not late. I'm not running out there. Oh my God, I'm out of control. I'm already late for a very important date. Stop. <laughs> Made success a habit. I succeed at waking up. I succeed at quoting scripture. I succeed at leaving my house on time. I succeed at driving the speed limit. I succeed. I succeed. That's the way I am. I succeed. I'm just so successful. Start a lifestyle of believing in. Talk about scratching itching ears. Believing in yourself and speaking well of yourself. It's not pretty, it's not nice to condemn yourself, to say I'm so stupid or to have a false humility or even what you think is a religious humility. Start a lifestyle of believing in yourself and love yourself so that you can love your neighbor. And remember, putting yourself down, insecurity, inferiority will not move you forward to a spiritual or a successful life. It's just a trick of the devil to keep you bound. And when you ask yourself, who told you that? That you should be insecure and feel inferior? The answer is, the enemy told you that. God didn't tell you that. God loves you. God believes in you. Well, it's the enemy who's telling you all these lies that this man's telling. And God says, you were created to succeed in life. You believe it? All right, give the Lord a hand clap. Yeah, actually, you're giving yourself a hand clap. You're going to believe in yourself alone today, remember. It's true. Yeah, and that's the end of that. Whoa. Remind me never again to do a cold sermon review. That was horrifying. Whoever, I got to find the person who who wanted me to review this thing. (laughs) <laughs> Take him out behind the woodshed. What on earth? That was horrifying. Uh, folks, Christianity is not about believing in yourself. It's about denying yourself. It's about saying to God, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And walking in humbleness. Because Jesus himself says, the one who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This, what you just heard from that man, Casey Treat, that was the religion of exalting yourself. And it's people like that who will stand before Christ on the last day and say things like, Lord, Lord, did we not in your name enjoy um, you know, prosperity and health? Lord, did we not in your name uh, do all these great things? You know, because of, And did we not in your name believe in ourselves? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Something to think about. Absolutely tragic. What'd you think? 
Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>